what it seems they really hadn't anticipated is that by trying to sideline him that way, this was the greatest campaign ad that Bernardo Arevalo could have hoped for. Now, anybody in Guatemala who wasn't quite sure about him, who hadn't heard about him, now they knew all they needed to know about him. This was a no BS anti-corruption crusader, and if the if the people in power were this scared of him, he must be the real deal. So in the second round, just six weeks after the first, this guy who had been at 0.7% of the vote ended up with 61% of the national vote and 80% of the vote in Guatemala City, which is the dominant city in this country. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. I'm Ann Bauer. I'm a novelist, an essayist, and I recently wrote a piece for Persuasion about the family estrangement trend in America. I'm an older Gen Xer with millennial kids, and I hear about estrangement almost every day. Estrangement is defined as going no contact or having a poor relationship with limited contact from a first-degree relative. Today, studies say one in four people is or has been estranged that way, and among the people I know, it's increasingly common. There are parents whose kids quit speaking to them for vague reasons, and people my age who've cut off their own elderly parents or their siblings for what seem like minor disagreements. I'm not talking about cases of abuse or criminal behavior. These are squishy, subjective issues like toxicity or adult child neglect, sometimes political disagreements. I read an article about a British archaeologist and humanist who didn't attend her mother's funeral because they'd had what she called a terminal break a few years prior over the issue of public funding for religious schools. I started researching my story, America's Families Are Not Okay, with two questions. First, where is this push to estrange coming from? And second, is it all bad? Are there perhaps evolutionary or cultural reasons that people need to live more independent lives? And is family being replaced by some other collective that serves a purpose? Over a few months, I spoke to a lot of people. I interviewed adult children who'd estranged and parents who had been estranged from. I also wrote about my own experiences coming from a family where people tend to walk away from each other and how that dynamic plays out over time. My story generated a lot of discussion. There are so many people affected by this issue, and it's clear that many of us are looking for answers and for a better way. If you're interested in estrangement, I hope you'll read America's Families Are Not Okay and join this conversation. Ann Bauer's article, America's Families Are Not Okay, was published by Persuasion. To learn more about the community we're building at Persuasion and to get similar articles directly into your inbox, head to www.persuasion.community. My guest today is Kiko Toro. Kiko was the founder of Caracas Chronicles. He was the chief content officer of the group of 50, and he is, among other things, now a contributing editor at Persuasion. For the magazine, he has just been writing about the amazing democratic success story in Guatemala, spending a good bit of 
time there. And in this conversation, he tells us about both how the Guatemalan democratic opposition surprisingly was able to wrest control of the country and why it matters. And then we went on a really fun tour d'horizon of just basically every major country south of the U.S. border, with Kiko helping to explain us why there is no single trend unifying developments in countries from Mexico to El Salvador to Venezuela to Brazil and to Argentina. So consider this your primer for not just what is going on in Guatemala, but Latin America as a whole. Kiko Toro, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. So Kiko, you are working closely with Persuasion. We run a lot of your excellent content and you have had a bee in your bonnet about Guatemala for the last months. And you keep pitching us stories about Guatemala and I keep thinking there's a limit to how much we can do about Guatemala. And then you deliver really, really interesting stories because what's been happening in the country is just fascinating. So tell us about how Guatemala has turned into one of the most unlikely, one of the biggest democratic success stories of the last year, of the last five years, perhaps of the last decade, and why it matters. Yeah, I feel like when I was younger, there was this brand of story we'd get in the newspaper quite often about democratic movements having, you know, big fights on the streets with autocratic governments, and sometimes they'd win and sometimes they'd lose. But over the last 10 or 15 years, the news has been mostly bad. We see what happened in Iran, what happened in Cuba. Democratic movements tend to get crushed, and it's it's awful. So when I saw people beginning to protest on the street in Guatemala to reestablish their democracy, my first thought was, well, here comes another, you know, crushing blow to the democratic movement, but but it didn't turn out that way. They actually managed to elect a new government that has sterling anti-corruption and sort of democratic bona fides. And, and they did it in this unique way, completely nonviolent, through the ballot box, but also through mobilization on the streets. And interestingly, with U.S. support. The U.S. Embassy played a very important role in coordinating these things and making sure that the rest of the international committee made it clear to the to the Guatemalan autocratic authorities that they were expected that there would be major consequences if they didn't allow the new democratically elected government to, to take office. So it's an amazing story. People haven't heard very much about it. And uh, yeah, I'd love to talk about it. I'm obsessed with it. So I think to appreciate just the significance of the events in Guatemala, it's important to understand a little bit about the history of a country and the political structure of a country, right? It is a country that has had elections for a long time, but wasn't a true democracy and in which a relatively small number of people were very dominant over the country's economy, but also over its political affairs. Tell us sort of a little bit about the broader political and socioeconomic structure of Guatemala and how that helps to explain what's so remarkable about this apparent democratic breakthrough we've seen in the last weeks. Yeah, I think you really need to go back to the civil war, which raged between 1960 all the way to 1996. It was a long and very bloody war that was uh, It was a leftist insurgency inspired by the Cuban Revolution, like we saw all over Latin America, trying to take on uh, this, this white elite in Guatemala City. The insurgency tried to mobilize the indigenous population, which is about 45% of the country, to, to overthrow the government. 
and it got very, very nasty, uh, especially there was a, about a two-year period between 1981 and 1983 when the Reagan administration was in power. Daniel Ortega and the Sandinistas had just taken over Nicaragua. The people in Washington were very concerned about dominoes falling in Central America. And so the green light was more or less given for for what's been called a scorched earth campaign, where the army carried out on the order of 626 massacres in a two-year period. Soldiers would just show up in a village and kill any Indian person they could find. And this was later described as... Acts of genocide. There was a big debate over whether to use the the word genocide, and the formula they finally settled on was acts of genocide. About 200,000 people were killed. 45,000 more people were disappeared. More than a million were displaced and ended up in the U.S. That's why there's more than 1.7 million Guatemalans in the U.S. now. And it really traumatized the entire society. At the end of this war, a law of national reconciliation was passed that granted amnesty for all of the crimes during the war, including the worst atrocities. And the army, the, the people who had run the killings, ended up more or less colonizing the state. They took off their uniforms, they put on a suit, they went to work in different ministries, they got elected to Congress, a couple of them ended up making it all the way to the presidency. And when they, they set up was really a kind of kleptocracy, where corruption became became absolutely mainstreamed into everything the Guatemalan state did. Guatemalans hated this, but there wasn't really very much that they could do about it because the Pacto de Corruptos, this pact of the corrupt that, that took over the country, controlled all the courts, the prosecutor general's office, which turns out to be very powerful in Guatemala. And they could very easily just sideline anyone who threatened them. They could just open an investigation, put them in jail, push them into exile. And it was kind of a perfect a perfect dictatorship in that sense, in that there were elections, there were this this outer form of democracy was maintained, but everybody could see that it, it wasn't really. So in this election, it looked like this was what the regime was going to do again, which is to say to investigate a number of opposition politicians, to disqualify a number of them. And then there was one politician that they sort of left standing because they didn't think that he was a viable candidate and so it would kind of be uh, nice uh, ornamentally to, to have him on the ballot. Am I getting this roughly right? Absolutely. In the polls right ahead of the election, like two months out, Bernardo Arevalo, this uh, sociology professor and son of the first democratically elected president in Guatemala back in the 1940s, he was at 0.7% of voting intentions. He was within the margin of error to zero. Nobody had really heard of him. He was quite an obscure kind of academic and minor congressman. So the regime did disqualify three figures, one from the far left, one sort of a populist who was coming up through his ranks, somebody else that they didn't really get along with, and didn't bother to disqualify Bernardo Arevalo because he was a nullity. What they didn't calculate is that if you sideline all of the reforming candidates except one, obviously all of the reformists vote is going to, to to concentrate around that one figure, which is what happened in Guatemala. And just like three weeks ahead of the vote, after these three can- other candidates had been disqualified, Bernardo Arevalo was at like 6%. He was earning fifth. It's a very divided field. And um, nobody really saw it coming. The polls did not show this last-minute surge, but on election night, he had 15% of the vote, and he came second. 
And this has been described as a glitch in the matrix. This was the thing that nobody really saw coming. And the regime thought, well, you know, this is bad, but we can deal with it. We still run the entire state. We still have many, many tools at our disposal to, to deal with this guy. And so they did what they always said. They, they went to the prosecutor general. It's, it's a strange figure in Latin America. And the piece I wrote about this, I go quite a bit into what, what a prosecutor general is. It's like an AG, but he's entirely independent of the president. He doesn't serve, or she in this case doesn't serve at the, at the pleasure of the president. And there's really no way to rein her in. The prosecutor general in Guatemala, this lady, Consuelo Podlas, was clearly aligned with the Pacto de Corruptos and... So she had a judicial action brought to, to say that Arevalo had not filled his paperwork to be on the ballot correctly in the first place, found some like nonsense technicality, and threw him off of the second round ballot. Did, did that mean that in the runoff there would have been sort of a third place candidate running against a first place candidate? Or was it just going to be acclamation? Was just going to be one person on the ballot? Well, that was never really made clear because all of this was incredibly illegal. Like the Guatemalan law is very clear that you could not do this, but they did it anyway. It doesn't seem like they had really looked ahead. They hadn't really understood what, what this would mean. First, the U.S. Embassy, which is a powerful player in Guatemalan politics still today, hit the roof because this is clearly would take Guatemala entirely out of the Democratic camp. The Biden administration made this very clear. And so next thing you know, other foreign affairs ministries around the continent and in the EU are, are saying, well, there will be consequences. There, there are going to be sanctions if this goes through. And at the same time, people started protesting in the streets in, in Guatemala. And there were these big protests around Guatemala City, smaller protests in the countryside. And this confluence of street protests and U.S. embassy pressure it's interesting, the way it played out was through the business lobby. You know, the conservative business elite around Guatemala City is very powerful. They have many links to the Pacto de Corruptos, and they started doing the math. Is this really in our interest? Okay, we might lose control of the of the government if this guy Arevalo gets in, but we can't lose access to the U.S. market. We can't all end up losing our U.S. visas. These people all have family in the U.S. They have kids going to U.S. universities in the elite. So the business sector started coming around behind Arevalo. And, and that alliance between U.S. diplomatic pressure, pressure on the streets, and the business community saying, well, this, this seems to be a bit too much, actually brought the prosecutor general around. The decision was overturned on appeal. Nobody believes in appeals in Guatemala. Like the, the, the Pacto de Corruptos reversed this decision and decided, okay, we're going to have to let Bernardo Arevalo run in the second round. But what it seems they really hadn't anticipated is that by trying to sideline him that way, this was the greatest campaign ad that Bernardo Arevalo could have hoped for. Now, anybody in Guatemala who wasn't quite sure about him, who hadn't heard about him, now they knew all they needed to know about him. This was a no BS anti-corruption crusader. And if the, if the people in power were this scared of him, he must be the real deal. So in the second round, uh, just six weeks after the first, this guy who had been at 0.7% of the vote ended up with 61% of the national vote and 80% of the vote in Guatemala City, which is the, the dominant city in this country. It was this very quick ascent, and nobody seemed more surprised by it than Bernardo Arevalo. 
So tell us a little bit about Bernardo Aravello. You know, obviously it looks like he's a very courageous man. He he appears to be principled, but it also sounds to me like the necessary scrutiny of him hasn't arrived because there hasn't been any time for it. So do you think that he will prove to be up for the moment? Will he be able to reform a country that has deep-rooted corruption, um, serious problems of crime, that is in need of rapid economic growth, that is a no mean task for somebody, no matter how experienced and well-intentioned they may be. What is your assessment of him as a political figure and as a political hmm. leader? Did we luck into a person of unusual talent and strength taking on this position, or does he have weaknesses that we should be worried or concerned about? Anyway, is a very funny figure. His father was the first democratically elected president of Guatemala back in 1945, kind of a legendary figure on the center left in Guatemala. The government that he started was eventually overthrown by a CIA-backed invasion in 1954, which is why Arevalo was born in exile. His dad had moved to, to Uruguay. He was born in Uruguay in exile. He didn't set foot in Guatemala until he was a teenager. In a very urbane international experience. The guy speaks English, French, and Hebrew fluently. He went to Hebrew University in Jerusalem. That's where he got his undergrad. Uh, and then he has a PhD in sociology from the University of Leiden in the Netherlands. So we're really talking about an academic, an intellectual, who later became a, a diplomat as well. He was Guatemalan ambassador to Spain for a few years and did, a, did other stints abroad too. So he's very moderate. He's very smart. But he's a conciliatory figure. He's a guy who will sit around and try to have a conversation with anyone who you put in front of him. And and then institutionalist, let's say. This is very, we're very far from the populist uh, way of doing politics in Latin America. In a way, he's kind of a throwback to the centrist politicians of, of Christian democracy in Latin America in the 70s and 80s. Now, my first impression when I saw him at the head of this protest movement is this guy doesn't have any fight in him. They're going to steamroll him because he's up against a bunch of crooks. But as it's turned out, his very moderate conciliatory stance has ended up making the, the prosecutor general and the people arrayed around him look just hysterical and weird. And you ended up in a situation where Guatemalans were rallying around Arevalo's moderation. Polls that I was shown in Guatemala City when I was there a couple of weeks ago showed him at 75 to 80% approval rating in Guatemala right now. The country has embraced Bernardo Arevalo-style moderation. The really interesting thing about that also is that the prosecutor general, this very powerful figure who cannot be uh, thrown out of office under, under Guatemalan law by the president or anyone else, is still deeply entrenched in her office until the year 2026 when her turn runs out. And anywhere else in Latin America, when you have two figures this antagonistic, uh, Prosecutor General Consuelo Podras, who clearly just wants to, to, to sidetrack the government any way she can, anywhere else in Latin America, this would have been a, a train crash. The president would have insisted on getting rid of her, whether legally or illegally, but that's not who Bernardo Arevalo is. Bernardo Arevalo's stake is that if he has to cohabitate with this figure for the first two years of his presidency, well, that's just what the law is and that's just what he's going to, to do. And, and I can't overstate how 
un-Guatemalan, this kind of institutionalism, and how un-Latin American this kind of institutionalism really is. It's a new thing, but it comes back to a phrase that he keeps using, which is political pedagogy. Now, we need to teach the political class a new way of doing politics, and the way we're going to do that is by example, by not acting the way that thugs have always acted in Latin American politics. And, and this, of course, goes to a broader question which you're going to face in a number of countries, which Poland faces in a different way at the moment, which is if you come into power in a system that's been deformed and deshaped, whether by populists, as in the case of Poland, or a different kind of kleptocratic uh, authoritarian, as in the Guatemalan case, how do you ensure that you make institutions independent, that you get rid of the holdovers of the old regime without breaking the very institutional norms and rules that you're trying to reestablish. It's a very, very hard and non-trivial problem. You were alluding to the fact that you spent some time in Guatemala recently. Tell us your impressions. Is this a country in which the bulk of the population had sort of more or less resigned itself uh, to the way things were and suddenly there's this real moment of hope and Opening, what are people's hopes and, and what are their apprehensions or fears in, in this historical juncture? <laughs> now, there had been so many presidents in a row who had been so corrupt in Guatemala for so long that people are just feeling their way around this strange new feeling of, of feeling proud of their leaders. And it was remarkable. People, if I told them I was from out of town and I'd come to write about the new government, Without fail, people would just express their pride and their support for Bernardo This is true in Guatemala City more than the rest of the country, I guess. But even in the indigenous areas in the west of the country, which, which had a huge part in the movement that brought Arevalo to power, there seems to be this new sense that, wow, there seem to be decent people running the country. So that was very palpable. But the other thing took me a little bit longer to put my finger on there is a sense that the new government is in office, but not yet in power. And that goes back to this prosecutor general situation. The prosecutor general in Guatemala, you know, that sounds like a minor office. It really isn't. It's sort of a co-equal branch of the state. The way the institutions are set up in Guatemala, if the prosecutor general wants to put you in jail and can find a judge who, who is friendly to her, which she can easily do because they controlled all the appointments of the judges, she can make one phone call, write one brief, and have anyone she wants in the country jailed. So there is this sense that so long as this cohabitation with Puebla's has to go on, at least until 2026, that there's kind of loaded gun pointed at the government's head at all times. And so it doesn't necessarily feel quite real. So for one thing, Arevalo ran on that strongly anti-corruption platform, but he can't hold any corrupt people accountable yet because he doesn't control the prosecution's power. What he can do and what he started doing is part of this idea of political pedagogy is negotiating differently with people in Congress. So the way it had always worked in Guatemala, you had like 10 parties in Congress. You had to cobble together a congressional majority. And the way the president did that was by dividing up no-show jobs, department governorships, which are appointed in Guatemala, and then cobbling a majority, a legislative majority, basically through corruption. When Arevalo reaches reaches presidency, he doesn't control Congress, but he sends his people in Congress to say, okay, we're going to try to find a majority in Congress, and I'm not giving anyone one red cent or one governorship. 
And this was a difficult pill to swallow for Guatemalan politicians who were used to doing things in a certain way. But once it became clear that this was just the terms of the negotiation, they started to realize, well, he's still the government. They still control the flow of, of funding. These contracts still have to be signed for that by them. We're probably better off siding with them. So Arevalo ended up also controlling Congress, even though he didn't win Congress at election. And, and this is very new and very unusual for Guatemala. So we're, we're, we don't know how long this is going to last. They don't know how long this is going to last, but, but they've seen Arevalo starting to establish a new normal in the way that congressional negotiations are made. That's fascinating. What should we look for over the course of the next four years in terms of how this story is going to pan out? And to bring a very different example, it strikes me that I've never quite been able to understand why it is that some countries are able to get rid of corruption very effectively and others struggle to do so for a very long time. So Singapore, for all of its flaws, is one of the very impressive examples of having gone from a very corrupt place in the 1950s and 1960s to a place that is clearly quite clean in terms of how its government runs, even if it's not fully democratic today. But other countries don't seem to be able to sort of play the same playbook, or perhaps there isn't exactly a playbook. I mean, what are the steps that a president would take in order to root out corruption and reform the system beyond those kind of power dynamics in Congress? And what should we look to in the next four or so years to judge whether this will ultimately end up being a cosmetic revolution or a revolution that really puts Guatemala hopefully on the trajectory towards you know, much greater economic growth and political freedom? Arevalo is trying to lead by example. And so what we've seen, for example, over the last couple of weeks, there's this whole question of department governors that need to be appointed. They're quite powerful. They control the flow of funds in, in rural Guatemala, but also in the city. Just, just local government spending has to go through these governorships that have always been appointed as part, this part of this corrupt carve-up. Arevalo instead opened up nominations to these posts. They set up a process and a commission to invite civil society to pick the best people to run their governorships. And he's having this open process that's all over TikTok, all over social media. They're very good at social media, these guys, I have to say, to select governors that will respond to local initiatives. So a lot of it ends up being about this, this kind of being seen to do things differently and modeling a different kind of behavior. In October this year, there's an important event we're going to see the term for the current Supreme Court justices will expire. It's kind of confusing because the Supreme Court is not actually the highest court of the land in Guatemala. That's a constitutional court. But the Supreme Court is where all criminal matters. It's a final appeal for criminal matters. That is still under the control of the old kleptocratic regime. And so that's why the period between now and October is especially dangerous. You get this sense in Guatemala City that Arevalo's people are just trying to tread water and make it to October. If they can make it to October, there's a new process for appointments in the Supreme Tribunal and the Supreme Court, which Arevalo will have a major say on, although not a complete say on. And so you're going to have more decent judges, even if you don't control the prosecuting power. From 2026, they will renew the prosecutor general, and then you'll be able to do, do things in a more comprehensive way against corruption. But I think the gradualism, I get the sense that Arevalo almost likes the fact that this is staggered over time because he is all about gradualism. He's all about 
reassuring elite Guatemala, the business sector, the very small white elite in, in Guatemala City, that he is not a crazy person, he is not Nayib Bukele, he is not Hugo Chavez, and that he will do things following the rules as they are written down, but those rules include you're not allowed to steal state money, okay? So we are going to see, I think October is probably the key landmark when the new Supreme Tribunal, when the new Supreme Court gets, uh, gets appointed. If they can make it that far, I think they have a good chance of, of making real inroads in, into corruption. One of the things I find very strange in American political discourse is that you have this category of Latino. And of course, in the census, it is understood that Latinos, in fact, come from different racial groups. And yet, even quite sophisticated American commentators tend to assume that Latinos should naturally stand on the same side of American politics because they have so much in common there, this one you know, unitary identity block. Of course, when you look at the politics of any country in Latin America, you have racial dynamics uh, racial divisions within the society, driving uh, a lot of those political conflicts. So what are the racial dynamics of Guatemalan society and politics? And how in particular has this kind of alliance that you were alluding to earlier between elite intellectuals like the new president and this mass protest movement of indigenous people brought about this victory? It's a very strange dynamic. I'm Venezuelan. In Venezuela, we don't have anything like this. In Guatemala, 45% of the population does not speak Spanish at home. They speak indigenous languages, uh, mostly, but not all, Maya. There are actually some pre-Mayan people from 12,000 years ago that hang on in some corners of Guatemala and speak languages not related to any of the Maya language. But even the Maya have 21 different nations and 21 different languages, and they are not necessarily mutually intelligible. So you have that. And on the other side, you have 55% of the population that's called Ladino, with a D, in the Guatemalan context, which, you know, before I went to Guatemala, I thought, well, those are the white people, but it's not. They're basically mixed race. When you when you look at genetic studies of this population, they're mostly indigenous themselves, but they speak like they're Hispanicized, is the word that's used. They, they speak Spanish at home. Indigenous Guatemalans also speak Spanish because they learn it at school or in the media, but that's not what they speak at home. The really interesting thing about the protests, especially after the second round, because after Arevalo won the second round with 61% of the vote, the prosecutor general still tried to stop him taking power. There were still more judicial processes. And at that point, Guatemala sort of erupted. But it didn't erupt in the way you would expect. You, know, you might expect that Arevalo being a white guy from the city, that the protests would be mostly city-based. But that's not what happened. What happened was that one particular indigenous group, the Quiche Maya people of Totonicapan, which is this area about 200 kilometers west of Guatemala City, decided to bring their people to Guatemala City. And they started to get buses together, mostly old yellow school buses that probably came back, came down from the United States after the end of their useful life there. I mean, packed people in, and they set up this protest encampment outside the prosecutor general's office that lasted three weeks. And we're talking thousands of people from Totonicapan living, sleeping out in the open, living, eating out of communal kitchens that had been set up by volunteers from Catholic charities or university activists that were backing Areolo, 
protesting the attempts to to stop Arevalo from from taking office. This is what Guatemalans call the slow motion coup. Now, when you hear their protest, what you realize is that there is an indigenous protest, but it wasn't an indigenous protest. They were very, very open, very mindful that they were just one of 21 ancestral peoples in Guatemala and very interested in motivating the other indigenous groups into joining them, which they did sort of by shaming them, by saying, well, Totonicapang is here. Where, why isn't your village here? So you started to see these copycat protests from many, many other indigenous groups and the Catholic Church and university-based intellectuals sort of in a supporting role. And it became a nationwide phenomenon. It became this moment of real social transformation. It became the moment when this went from being purely a political story to being a story about Guatemalans seeing themselves in a new and different way and, and feeling empowered to face down the police, to face down the prosecutor general, to face down these forces in their society that had been stealing from them for 30 years. So I think it's very interesting the way that even though Arevalo, he speaks French, Hebrew and English, but he does not speak Quiche. I think he worried that he would never really catch on in indigenous areas. But at this point, he is president purely because of the indigenous protests. So I can't think of another president in Latin American history who owes more of his power to indigenous mobilization than Bernardo Arevalo, not even a guy like Evo Morales in Bolivia, who actually was indigenous and who headed an indigenous movement. No, not even him. So the day after he finally took power or he finally took office, there was this very peculiar moment where Arevalo and his vice president decided to spend their first day in office attending this indigenous Maya ceremony to invoke the protection of the ancestral spirits for the new presidential couple and gave this this speech that was, in a way, more indigenista than anything any of the Quiche Maya leaders had said. So this is now really a, a government that owes its existence to indigenous Guatemala. And what I think will be really, really interesting, for example, for political scientists over the next generation, will be to see the distributional impact of this. Because he is now clearly expected to mobilize state resources to help these people who have been, well, first, the objects of acts of genocide, uh, hideously oppressed over 400 years, and who nonetheless came out to defend their votes and to become kind of the backbone of this liberal revolution. So I think everybody can learn a lot from the Totonicapan mobilization. I think it really should be taught as a, a, a standard way that members of one ethnic group can have a protest that is based on their ethnic identity, but that is open to all other ethnic identities too. It's hugely inspiring, if you ask me. Kiko, at this point, we're going to have to move a little bit beyond Guatemala. But I want to understand, you know, why is it that we've seen this democratic revival in Guatemala, but not by and large in other countries in Central and South America? Is this just one of those stories in which agency matters more than structure, in which something had a very low probability of happening, but all the dominoes fell in exactly the right way, and suddenly you get this democratic moment. Are there differences between Guatemala and countries like Venezuela, where you were raised and, and grew up, and which you know very well, where uh, attempts to stand up 
to the authoritarian government of Hugo Chavez and when his uh, successor Maduro have failed? Is it that the opposition in other countries made mistakes and that the future opposition leaders learn from uh, what has happened in Guatemala, they might be able to do better. How do we think about the significance of these events in broader context and what explains the contrast between the good news from Guatemala and the generally bad news from the broader region and, in a sense, the wider world? That's a question that I've spent a lot of time pondering. I don't know if I have a good answer for it, but I think of it like this. When Hugo Chavez was first elected in Venezuela in 1998, I remember being vaguely embarrassed about what was happening in my country because he seemed like such a throwback. You know, he had this discourse from the Cuban Revolution and he just sounded like someone out of like, the wrong decade. And I was like, dude, this is never going to catch on in the region. You're, you're just out of time. And over the next 10 years, as more and more populists got elected, you know, first in places like Brazil and Honduras, and later eventually in places like the United States, I came to realize how wrong that had been. Chavez wasn't a throwback. He was, he was ahead of his time. He was pointing to something that uh, was just beginning to bloom across the region and around the world. And all I can say about Arevalo is that he also feels like a throwback to, to a different time, to a more moderate time when centrists could just be centrist. And he does seem out of time now because he's the first one. But it might be that the region starts to see a shift in the pendulum towards that kind of position. Maybe, hopefully, uh, if the stars line up right, 20 years from now, we look at Arevalo as the first of his kind and not the last of his kind. Tell us a little bit about what the situation is in some of those other Latin American countries. Venezuela is a country that followed closely for a while and is, is close to my heart, even though I've never had the chance to to be there. And it just seems like the situation there is getting going from bad to worse to to even worse and even even worse. And yet the Maduro regime appears relatively stably in the saddle. How is it possible? for a political movement that started with genuine hopes under Hugo Chavez, that, that came to want to make the country fairer and more affluent, to deteriorate to such an extent that you know, a very large percentage of the population has left, the living standards have collapsed, and yet keep control. Those things are clearly related. Um, what happened in Venezuela is that the, this generation that I spent two decades chronicling that had fought the regime, that was on the street, facing down riot cops and getting tear gas and getting roughed up and thrown, to, thrown into jail, at a certain point, switched from fight to flight. And so those kids that were facing down the cops seven years ago, well, they are making their way up through Central America, through Guatemala. So a lot of Venezuelan migrants in Guatemala City when I was there, which was shocking. And making their way up to to the Rio Grande and 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 ending up, well, I'm sure if you live in a big city in the U.S., you see the Venezuelan encampments. They're the same people. So if you export your protesters, well, what's left back in Venezuela is this crisis of the empty rooms. Every house, every apartment, every shack in Venezuela has an empty room now because people who were sleeping there have have left. It stabilizes the country because now you have remittances, too. 
Now these people who end up in the U.S. or in Chile or Peru or wherever it is, they, they get a job and they send money back. And so the economic crisis, the economy isn't going to grow, but it's at least stabilized and people aren't starving. So, I mean, it's very sad, but, but Venezuela shouldn't be mistaken as the future of Latin America or even the present of Latin America. Venezuela and Nicaragua are strange outliers of, of now consolidated democracies. The broader trend in the region is there isn't a broader trend in the region. You got countries going left, like in, you see in Brazil going left. You see Mexico going in this strange direction that is somehow right wing nationalist, but also left wing at the same time. You see Argentina in the hands of a libertarian lunatic. You see El Salvador in the hands of a very strange new type of millennial dictator, the region doesn't have a trend. And this is something that I think it's, man, I, I get it that it's it's not the most satisfying answer. We'd like to be able to summarize the region, but these really are a bunch of different countries with different histories and different dynamics inside each one. They sometimes cluster together. But right now, I, I don't think that's that's what's happening in, in Latin America. I think you have Many, many different countries going in different directions, some moving forward, some moving back, though all of them arguably just really exposed to, to commodity markets, as it's always been, because Latin America mostly exports commodities. So I buy the point that there's no general trend, but perhaps let's double click on a few of those figures, because I think that my audience will be familiar with a lot of these political leaders at the broadest level, but what I think profit from hearing a little bit more about each of them. So let's go and we'll see where I get my geography right, roughly north to south. One neighbor of Guatemala is Mexico. And it seems to me that this is one of the more significant political figures, certainly in Latin America and, and, and more broadly in the world at the moment, that Americans, despite being close to the country know very, very little about. There was a remarkable moment in the 2020 Democratic Party primaries where, uh, you know, a number of the candidates that were still in the race at the time were asked to name the president of Mexico. And I think not a single one of them was able to do that. And yet AMLO, who is coming to the end of his time in office, but is likely to be succeeded by a sort of hand-chosen successor and to continue to exercise a lot of power in the country, perhaps the real power in the country, is a, an important figure. Tell us a little bit about AMLO, about his political ideology and about how he's been transforming Mexico and undermining democratic institutions there. AMLO is a very strange political animal and very hard to get a read on if you're not Mexican or even if you are Mexican, um, as I found out. His roots are in the old PRI, the Partido Revolucionario Institucional, that ran Mexico as a one-party state for 70 years up until the year 2000. That's where he got his start in politics. This was um, known as a perfect dictatorship because they always fund the elections. The elections were not fair. And the entire party, the entire country ran as a one-party state. This seems to be, I think, AMLO's real ideology. He wants to recreate the old PRI system. After he left PRI, after 2000, he spent a stint on the left and he tried to recraft himself as a figure on the left. But I think in power, what he's shown is that he still basically sees Mexico as a place that should be run by a single political machine forever. And that machine should be his machine, run by the party he came up with, which he called Morena, whose ideology I cannot enlighten you on, Yasha, because 
I don't get it. You know, there's this resource nationalism and a lot of emphasis on sovereignty and baiting the Americans and baiting anyone who tries to tell Mexico how to do their work, but then also pretending taking some like left wing positions, but then getting very cozy with the business elite as well. His split chosen successor, Claudia Scheinbaum, is a is an interesting personage. She's an intellectual, she is a chemical engineer with a PhD, or a chemist, I think, with a PhD from the University of California at Berkeley. So an actual scientist, brutally smart, as far as anyone can tell. But her entire political persona, since she came into politics, has consisted entirely in shadowing AMLO, doing whatever AMLO says, and not allowing any daylight to come between her and AMLO. So is she going to be a stooge? Once she reaches power, which she will win, I mean, she's 20 points ahead in the polls, or is she going to be her own woman? We don't know. There's been many cases in Latin American politics over the last 50 years of people who were handpicked to become a stooge in power and then decided, no, you know what? I want to be my own president. So that'll be really interesting to watch, but, it, but it's very hard to read. Mexico has every problem that a country could have. None of the problems are better now than when AMLO took power four years ago, and he is incredibly popular in Mexico. And somebody explain it to me, please. I won't explain it to you, and uh, sadly, nor will anybody else on this podcast, but I want to go uh, south, leapfrogging Guatemala to a small country on the uh, southwestern borders of Guatemala, El Salvador. You, you mentioned Bukele earlier. Very, very different figures. We have Mexico with with AMLO, some form of authoritarian populist claiming to be left-wing, even though it's not really clear that that's true in his ideology. When you have this moderate, in some ways nearly technocratic, democratic revolutionary who just took power in Guatemala that we've talked about for the bulk of this conversation. And then you go on to El Salvador and you have a very, very different figure in Bukele, who's also just won a re-election in the country, I, I believe. Tell us about Bukele and how you worried at one point, I remember, that he would become really the model for every other would-be ruler in, in Latin America. What has made Bukele so successful in terms of political terms, in terms of increasing public safety in his country? What are the reasons to worry about Bukele and his authoritarian methods? And has he, in fact, proven to be the inspiration for political leaders in other parts of Latin America, or has that not yet transpired? Bukele doesn't pretend to be a Democrat, which is already a very bad sign in my book. He's very clear that he intends to be president for life, and he's only in his 30s now, so that could be a very long time. He patterns himself very explicitly on Lee Kuan Yew and, and Singapore. So what's interesting about Bukele is that in the region, we have lots of experience with clueless, useless, thuggish authoritarian rulers. What we have less experience with is with authoritarian rulers who have a knack for technocracy, who have a knack for running the country effectively, and who get results for voters. So that's what's strange about Bukele. Not that he's you know, the anti authoritarian, but that when he decided to crack down on the gangs that were making Salvadorans' lives miserable, he did it effectively. And so his popularity shot up. People in El Salvador was one of the most dangerous places in the world. People hated it. So it's entirely normal that he would become so popular. He just won re-election in an election that was so far from free and fair with a, you know, no freedom of speech, no real freedom to organize against him. 
that I don't think we can really call that an election. But the interesting thing is that if the election had been fair, he would have won anyway. But he doesn't believe in democracy. So odds on, what generally happens with leaders like Bukele is that they start out doing things that people like, and then when they start doing things that people don't like, people realize, oh, he's instituted an authoritarian system. Now we can't get rid of him. That's the most likely thing. There are black swan events like the original Lee Kuan Yew, who was incredibly effective, so effective that people more or less gave him a pass on his early human rights abuses. That could be the future of, of El Salvador. But I don't worry that there will be 20 bukeles in Latin America because thuggishly authoritarian people are generally not good at actually governing. So it's very hard to actually find the people to become the next bukeles. But but what I what I'm concerned about is people claiming to be successors to Bukele. And we see a little bit of that in Ecuador now where there is um, a new president who's also in his 30s, who also faces a very violent set of, of gangsters that are making life miserable for Ecuadorians and who is trying to emulate some of the get tough policies that, that Bukele applied so successfully in, in Ecuador. So he's just jailed 6,000 gang members over the last few weeks, declared a, basically a state of civil war against the gangs. We'll see the way that that, that goes. Um, I don't see a huge wave of people behind Noboa, uh, Ecuador's new president, trying to, to emulate something like that. But even someone like Millet in Argentina has made some bukele-ish noises, even though obviously Argentina doesn't have, it's not in a good drug route, so it doesn't have the, the kinds of gang problems that Ecuador and, and El Salvador have. You've taken us south towards Ecuador. If you go a little bit further south and mostly east, you end up in Brazil. This is obviously a story that listeners of the podcast will have followed, uh, Jair Bolsonaro and his presidency. He was often called the Trump of the tropics. That was, I think, an oversimplification. But certainly Bolsonaro was in certain ways inspired by, by Trump and emulated that brand of far-right populism. He was defeated at the last elections by a broad coalition spearheaded by uh, Lula. And he appears to have become much less relevant in Brazilian politics, both because he has somewhat lost control over the sort of right-wing coalition. Um, unlike in the United States, right-wing Brazilian political parties seem to have turned away from Bolsonaro. And now uh, he may, in fact, be prosecuted for some of his actions, doubting the outcome of the of the election. But how durable is this new settlement in Brazil? It is a deeply divided society, deeply divided between North and South, between the rich and the less affluent, and uh, between the secular Brazilians and those who are both deeply Catholic and increasingly a very high percentage of Brazilians who are very evangelical. Is Lula, uh, who's getting on in age as well, going to be able to hold together that more left-leaning coalition, or what is the future of Brazilian politics? You have to start by saying that Bolsonaro didn't get in trouble for doubting the election. He got in trouble for organizing a coup d'etat and keeping minutes. You know, this is sort of that wire meme of, are you taking notes on a criminal conspiracy? Yes, they were taking notes on a criminal conspiracy, 
and Brazilian justice seems to be coming down rather hard against that. I think there's a very clear parallel between Bolsonaro and Trump, both in their ideology and the way they behaved after they lost the election. And I don't think American justice is looking great by comparison to Brazilian justice in the way that it's dealt with this. Um, you know, when when evidence became was forthcoming that Bolsonaro had tried to overthrow the government, institutions acted. They acted quickly. They seized his passport. He cannot leave the country, and he will odds on end up in in jail, which is where where he belongs. Lula, in his well, now third term, because he spent two terms in power back at the beginning of the odds, is really outperforming, I think, everybody's expectations in that he has managed to pass tax reform, which in Brazil was long assumed to be impossible. It had the world's most complicated and worst tax code, needed simplification desperately. Lula did it. He seems to be hanging on to a working majority in Congress without bribing everybody, which was his strategy the first time around. That's why he ended up in jail for a while between his stints in power. You know, Lula had demonstrated during his first two terms in power that he had a level of comfort with the corruption in the Brazilian state that was really off-putting to a lot of us. And when he won again, I really had this sense like, oh, God, no, you know, it's just going to be more Lula-style corruption. So far, it doesn't appear that that's the way he's governing this time. Maybe that year and and spare change that he spent in jail had a salutary effect. Maybe you should just throw all former Latin American presidents for a year in jail if they want to come back into power. Uh, that might do some good. Um, the Brazilian economy is also doing better, and, and Lula is more, more popular than had been assumed. So Brazil is in a really interesting path, and Lula has done quite a bit to redeem himself from the sense of his his first two terms in office. Kiko, this is a very impressive tour d'horizon, um, even though there are more uh, countries in uh, South America we could talk about. I promise that I will leave it at uh, the last one, which is, along with Chile, the southernmost country in Latin America. And it's, of course, Argentina, where Javier Milei came to power a number of months ago. He too has often been compared to Donald Trump, though he's rather different both in his personal style and in his ideological roots. He is a libertarian on economic issues in a way that uh, was never quite true of, of Trump, who in some important ways ran to the left of a Republican field in the 2016 primaries on economic issues, at least. Lay, of course, won power in the context of a country suffering from hyperinflation, from, I think, 140% a year inflation rates, running against Peronista finance minister, who was in part responsible for that inflation. So I think you could see why Argentinians were deeply dissatisfied and may have been willing to uh, opt for any alternative to the status quo. But Malay is a a rather erratic and risky alternative to the status quo. So how do you assess Malay? What have his last first weeks and uh, months in office been like? And can he, as we should all hope, turn around the Argentinian economy and get the country off of its very long path of economic stagnation and decline? I think the the parallels between Bolsonaro and Trump were completely fair. But with Millet, I really think it's a it's a lazy take. And I hate it when, when U.S. journalists go for this because they're entirely unrelated phenomena. Millet is a doctrinaire libertarian. 
If you had a doctrinaire libertarian in your dorm in your freshman year of college, you know what he thinks because he takes the most extreme doctrinaire libertarian position possible and runs with it in a completely unrelenting and and well, what's the word? He he he's just not some. He's not the kind of person that you can really reason with or you can really find agreements with. In a country like Argentina, which is institutionally developed enough that you do need deals in Congress to get things done, this is likely to end up meaning that he's entirely ineffective. And we've already seen that. His major reform package announced right after he took power through decrees is now getting picked away at by acts of Congress. Rather than going to congressional leaders and trying to sit down with them and hash out a deal, which he appears to be just congenitally unable to do. He's just attacking them in the media and like sending mean tweets at them. Guy's a nightmare. And I don't think it's going to go well. He seems more interested in like winning the meme war than governing the country. And this is not a grown up way to, to govern a country. So is Millet going to attempt some kind of power grab I, you know, it doesn't seem to be the guy's profile he's not you know an army guy he's not a bolsonaro type but what seems more likely is that he is going to spend his time in casa Busa in buenos aires just tweeting mean tweets getting into fights with people over nonsense and issuing decrees that that courts or congress then strike down and uh, that doesn't seem to me to be the way that you transform a country. It's really sad because a, a slightly more politically adept figure could have done so much with the huge mandate that he got, but it that doesn't seem to be the way it's going in Argentina. Kiko Toro, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Great fun. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. 